Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with award-winning Victorian novelist Gregory Day. Gregory's latest novel is A Sand Archive. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I explore books, writing, and literary culture, broadcasting Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Great Conversations is a way to enlarge that discussion. It's a weekly podcast sharing the stories and issues that make our world tick, getting behind the scenes, talking with the creators of the books that you love. A Sand Archive wings its way between Paris and Geelong as we follow F.B. Herschel, a young engineer who must solve the problem of stabilising sand dunes to ensure the safe construction of the Great Ocean Road. Landing in Paris on the cusp of the 1968 student protests, Herschel discovers his project is intimately connected to the ways in which we grow and shape the world and our understandings of our place within nature. I'm joined on the line by Gregory Day. Gregory is a writer, poet and musician. His first novel, The Patron Saint of Eels, won the Australian Literature Society Gold Medal. His other works include Archipelago of Souls and The Grand Hotel. And today we will be discussing his latest novel, A Sand Archive. Gregory, welcome to Final Draft. Thank you for joining me. No problem at all, Andrew. I have to confess, the thing that really drew me to a sand archive is um, is actually just a, a love of Geelong. So ah. everything that expanded out from there um, was was just wonderful. Okay. My my mum's family come from Geelong, so right. my mum grew up in uh, in Manifold Heights, and so f- right. for most of my young life, I would spend part of the year in in that area. And I've still got an uncle and family that live in is it um, Belmont, I think. Yep. Yeah, that sort of Belmont kind of goes goes up steeply over the yeah, river. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's Belmont. Yeah, so I haven't. So you been... didn't grow up there yourself, but your family has a strong connection there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Still got lots of family. So I've got an uncle. So my mum and my mum and all her brothers grew up there, and one uncle lives in Warrnambool, one lives in in Belmont. So okay. Yeah, really, I really love that town. So I was like, oh great, I'll I'll happily yeah. read a story about Geelong, and then. Paris is just a bonus, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, said said no travel agent anywhere, but... Uh... I don't know how many other novels there are which um, give, mm, give much texture of Geelong at all, actually, in fiction. Mm-hmm. So it is an interesting it, it is an interesting aspect of Sand Archive, writing about a town which has such a layered and complex history, mm. um, but really in in terms of fiction hasn't really been dealt with much at all. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, I can't I can't think of any, um, and because my experience of Geelong has always been episodic so i have yeah, i have yeah. very very clear memories of Geelong from 30 yeah. plus years ago yeah. um ex- almost exclusively limited to a wonderful backyard and vegetable patch which was my pa's um yeah and then visiting it ever since i mean the last time i was there i think was was a couple of years ago to have a proper visit yeah. and it was it was changed utterly, but then also little things were just so so beautifully the same. Yeah. So you've got a kind of Proustian relationship to Geelong. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah. yeah that's really nice. I mean, it's a strange... It's, 
it's a, it's kind of um, it has a central kind of colonial narrative to it, Geelong that you know really is quite significant in Australian history. But then it also has this incredible intimacy to do with its landform and just all the many very ordinary lives that have lived there mm. um, behind the you know the great kind of public gates of something like Geelong Grammar or something which people might might know or the football team you know yeah but then there's this quiet classic quiet regional life going on there which actually reminds me a lot of I think in England and France you know there are a lot of towns that size that people really love and and have been quite well documented but Australia's not so good on regional stuff well, I think so obsessed with our national story. Yeah. <laughs> now, a sand archive. Uh, a sand archive. When a young writer happens upon a slim volume on dune stabilisation and the development of Victoria's Great Ocean Road, he finds himself captivated by an unlikely philosopher, befriending F. B. Herschel before his death. The narrator feels compelled to discover more of the man. A life that takes him to the Paris student uprising of 1968 and delves into the meaning of humankind's interventions on our natural world. Um, Gregory, I've, I mean, I've just called F.B. Herschel a philosopher there, and that's something that very much unfolds through a sand archive. But F.B. Herschel is an engineer. He's seeking a solution to the movement of sand beneath the site of the proposed Great Ocean Road. It's a seemingly academic proposal, and yet he remains throughout the novel something of a an enigma to to the reader and to your narrator, even as this story unfolds through his diaries, you and you the narrator acknowledges as much, wondering how much of Herschel he has actually created himself in interpretation. What was the relationship that you wanted us to have with Herschel? Um, well, the book is in some ways it dwells in this kind of half lit space between fact and fiction. And that is a territory that I find increasingly interesting, having written this as my fifth novel. And I, they're all kind of basically... Uh, what, I'm, what I think of my project um, in an overall sense, I feel like I'm attempting to build a map through books, through characters, through story through sound and through um, situations that I'm inventing. but And that kind of... That map um, has a lot to do with my family, where my family arrived in Australia in 1841, the place where I've grown up and lived on the coast here in southwest Victoria, and all the connections to that place, which is just a small little town... But because of the history of this landscape, Aboriginal and uh, post-Aboriginal, um, there's an enormous kind of level of layer and connection. And so I'm trying to build a map. And necessarily, I think, I have to increasingly, as I go on writing fiction, increasingly I have to acknowledge um, my doubts about whether fiction really in a sense, actually exists, even though I'm making up stories and making up characters. They're very much triggered by the world I live in. 
and very intentionally so. So F.B. Herschel is a character who exists in that half-light. So there is a sense that the reader may feel... Well, I know that readers have told me that they've gone looking up this character on Google or whatever. I'll acknowledge. Sorry, I did. <laughs> yeah, looking for this character because there is a, something in the style of the book that would make you believe that this person actually existed. That's part of the novelist's kind of illusory act. But in this territory, it's for me, it's also an intentional thing to question... Uh, our stereotypes about what is a novel, what is non-fiction, and that we're all living in kind of an overlap of those two categories all the time, whether we're writing or not. So, across the novel, and I, I think this may tap into what you were just discussing around this illusory sort of sense of, of are we fictionalising our own world, are we living in a novel? Across the novel, you set up a dichotomy between nature and culture, yeah. sous la pave la plage, yeah. pardon my French, <laughs> that as we, as we layer ourselves with the trappings of culture, both spiritual and physical, yeah. we're inevitably separating ourselves from nature. But, but is this necessarily a true divide, do you feel? Yeah, well, no, I mean, conceptually, it doesn't make any sense. Mm. I mean, conceptually, a skyscraper is as natural as a tree because it's come from the earth that we live on with the materials. If we've invented it and made it, and us being part of nature, our brains being part of nature, then it's natural, mm. you know. But we have, of course, as the since industrialisation, we do have this sense that we are living more in a built environment, and that what people like about nature is that they have this this thing. That there's no human hand. There's no deliberate kind of controlling act um, behind a tree or a bee or a river bend or so forth. Even though, of course, the climate, the cultivation, the cultural landscape has influenced those things. So there is, there is, a, 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 there is a line you can draw to some extent, but of course that line, if you look at it too closely, always starts to shift. But what, what, that's very much at the heart of what the novel's about for me because... Um, we do live in a time where nature is kind of coming home to roost um, with the climate and our, our kind of lack of regard for it and our sense, our kind of hubris about how we can do what we like with the nature we've been given and a part of. So in 1968 in Paris, um, there was this phrase, sous le pas de la plage, which the students would uh, use and scrawled on walls in, their, uh, in the middle of their uprising against the state. And that, that phrase means, under the cobblestones lies the beach. And that had to do with the fact that when they were fighting the riot police in the streets of Paris, they, the only weapons they or one of the weapons they had was the cobblestones on the beach, on the streets, which they would dig up and hurl at the police. And, of course, anyone who's laid cobblestones knows that underneath the cobblestones there is a bed of sand... And it became a symbol for kind of nature culture, the grid of the cobblestones over the kind of free ramble of the sand, the grid of nature, the grid of culture over nature. And the grid was represented by the university, the conservative France that had kind of cemented itself post-Second World War and that the students in their post-structuralist fervour wanted to smash and break open and 
although it's um, often seen as a political act, it's also a very significant, I think, cultural moment in terms of our relationship to nature. And I think the, the Sur le Pavre Plage phrase just symbolises that for me. And it, that came after the whole idea of the book, which was, you know, about this man who would go to France to research sand dune stabilisation for the purpose of working on the Great Ocean Road. That's all based on historical fact, but then the, symbol, the symbolism of the philosophy, the philosophical moment in Paris was just um, perfect, a perfect kind of crucible for the, for the theme. In FB's travels, who travels to Paris and then he later travels down to the Atlantic coast, um, I feel in these studies you enormously complicate this idea of of the the way we layer and structure and what is in itself natural. And F, so FB takes back the idea of using marram grass to secure the sand yeah. um, and, and create the stability that he needs to create his road. And he gets that from the Atlantic coast where similar efforts have been used over hundreds of years. And so for, for many people landing there, that would look like the natural world, but the marram grass, the, the way it has been shored up, is actually a grid layered over, is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I find that enormously complicating, that if we dig deep enough, everything that we understand is mm. is culturally influenced. Yeah, cultural landscape. I mean, mm. that, that, and for Australians, that is such, that should be such a central story to our understanding of what Australia as a white European culture is. Because, you know, famously when white colonists first came here, they thought it was all natural. There are constant references in the early text to the park-like landscape, like an English park. It's like a park. We walked through the trees and it was like a park. Bill Gamages documented this in his great book, The Biggest Estate on Earth. Of course, it wasn't natural. It was very, very subtly uh, cultivated landscape through fire-stick farming by um, Aboriginal people. So that in itself is the greatest example I know of, of how what we presume to be natural is, of course, often not. Often it's, it's, a, it, well, it's natural, but it's a managed cultural landscape and there's people's blood and sorrow and bones in the place and it's not just terra nullis, just as the coast, the French coast along near Arcachon, which features in the book, as you, as you so rightly mm. say, is a managed cultural landscape as well. Mm. So in FB's travels, he travels to Paris to learn engineering principles. He, he goes down to the coast with um, Mathilde, uh, the, the woman he's fallen in love with, who, who happens to be from the, the same area. So she travels with uh, FB and <laughs> Professor Lacan, and they... They see this coast, and in through both the love and also in um, the the love between FB and Mathilde and FB's experience, he has this world, this engineering puzzle, but his own heart sort of opened up to him. Did you want this experience, this this travel that FB takes, to speak to Australia's relative isolation and our place in the world, or maybe just to the blindness, as you've you've touched on before, to our blindness to culture, be it internationally or there in the, the dispossessed, invaded 
um, peoples who who had to you know make way when the you know bigger weapons came came to land in 1788. Oh, I think um, uh, the it's always an interesting question, you know, like when you're writing a novel, how much you intend, <laughs> and how this how you how the energy has come to you to write the book. You're not writing an essay, so you're not actually just trying to prove a point. I think a good novel does more than that. But um, I do think that what I'm working on is a three-book project. Archipelago of Souls was the first one where a, a Australian character goes to a place in Europe where a significant historical moment is happening in and then comes back to Australia and so reflects on Australian culture through the prism of this moment that this the, the character has been exposed to in Europe. In the Archipelago of Souls, it was, he was a soldier from this area who went and fought in Crete, home of classical mythology during the Second World War, and then comes back. Here in the Sand Archive, it's a character from the Great Ocean Road going in and getting caught up in that philosophical moment. So... Very much. I'm very interested in the way that Australia fits into the tapestry of the rest of the world and how we see ourselves uh, culturally. And so by taking a character from a very small regional part, putting them into a central, famous, historical moment in France, and then bringing them back here. And so they look again. It's about looking again at, at how we are here and how we might be able to do things different, how we follow and how we unfollow. Mm. Liberty at the expense of the land is not worth considering. Professor Lacombe's words to FB, these plant the seeds of a personal revolution that is realised through the novel. And you have have much to say about our modern sense of progress. You debate this philosophy between Mathilde's father and Lacombe, but do you have a sense that it's an issue that we can resolve or that we even have the will to try and resolve? Oh, look, I think, I think amongst... It's, it's one of those things where, you know... I mean, it's, it's in the common vernacular where people say, oh, you know, they call it progress. I mean, hmm. the common ordinary person, I think, understands the kind of excesses and folly of ourselves as a society. Um, but the wheels in motion that control the kind of structure of the way our world is built are now so inflated and so the scale of it is so big that it is that like the classic thing about trying to turn around a ship that is just so big and slow to turn around and so there is a sense isn't there that there's some kind of race against time or something you know mm. how can we can we change this fast enough to kind of save our skins or what have you but I, but I also think the bigger question is that it's not all about us anyway. Mm. And if we don't get saved, well, that might be better for, for all the rest of nature and the, and the species that have just as much right to exist as we do. Yeah. I want to I take up, you just said there, can we change it fast enough? But you also, you also discuss the idea that we are addicted to the, the sort of the blinding dazzle, what you call the cultural avalanche. And this is, this is part of what was playing out in, in May 1968. And only to a, to a, certainly to a, a, 
different degree, but especially with the the machines of social media, yeah. we have so much more of an addiction to the spectacle. Yeah. And and how do you feel that that's shaped what we feel is important? Could we actually move back to this this philosophy of Professor Lacombe's that the the land we move slowly with the land? We almost have to look at geographical time. Yeah. No. I think. Well, I think it's not a matter of moving back or forward. I think that's part of from my humble point of view. I, I just don't think the linear side of it, look, looking at it, is is an answer. I'm not into nostalgia. I'm not into you know. I think that's really, I mean, I have young children and I think about their future to come as, I do, I do think of it as a real opportunity to bring nature and culture into some kind of workable balance. Because as we've seen with Trump and his rise, I mean, so much great stuff has come since Trump came to power. Just at the moment where the worst thing happens all this other great stuff happens in response. And I think that's the nature of reality. So, like in 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. So capitalism feels like it's triumphed. Finally, it's got the proof that it's won. But in 1989, that was also the time when the first global conferences were held on the possibility of climate change being some kind of catastrophe. So capitalism has both won and perhaps lost in exactly the same moment. And I think that's just how things have always been. Um, And with the social media and so forth, as we know, there's great stuff that comes from it. There isn't as well. The desire for the spectacle is um, both a superficial thing, also it's an explosion of narrative, if you like, and imagery in our life, which for creative people may, may be seen as a positive. Mm. Are we addicted more to artifice, though? I mean, we see a lot now if we think about our understanding and our desire to understand nature. Yeah. You know, sea changes, tree changes, everything's yeah. artisanal. But it's yeah. all... F- and, and this is framed as a cultural movement, but it yeah. it can also... I mean, you know, too many people sea changing and tree changing is just yeah. going to destroy that environment. I mean, it... Are we addicted to artifice? Can we can we see beyond it in this in a similar process that FB goes through? Yeah, well, we are makers. You know, I think mm. humans are makers. We don't have um, the tooth, we don't have the claw, we don't have the pelt, and we build our world. You know, I mean, that's there's no getting around that. Mm. So then it becomes down to what we build, how we build, how fast or slow we build, and I mean it. It's a know thyself thing, I think. You know, like if you... You can't be in denial about the fact that we are builders. Mm. We are makers. Um, But, you know, like there's a whole movement called uh, biomimicry Mm. in architecture where you look at phenomena in nature to understand how best best to build an environment that fits with it. Um, There's lots of examples of it. One is the airbags in our cars which NASA first developed and it was based on the air sacs in the brow of the seabird the gannet which dives at 100 kilometers an hour into the water fishing for food and the only reason why its head doesn't explode is because of these subcutaneous air sacs and so NASA take that and develop it and now everyone's driving around in the car with these things there are I mean nature just is as any kind of geneticist will, will tell you the, 
what we don't know about nature what far outweighs what we do. And maybe the, maybe um, the majority of the solutions for our own sakes lie in our being way more conscious, connected and immersed in it. You know, not just a tree change as a stylistic thing, or as you say, a uh, artisanal kind of mode, but to do it um, not just to bring, I suppose, the coffee to the bush, but to <laughs> infuse the coffee with the bush, something like that. We skirted we skirt a very dangerous yeah. potential paradox there though in in that in making in creating we inevitably destroy something you want yeah. to you want to erect something you have to take those materials from somewhere else and and then perhaps we spiral ever onward into this trying to find that balance well but that's the case with nature too I mean the, the forest floor is is just uh, the greatest example mm. it's just the forest floor is a thick litter of dying things that have that give more life than any living thing. You know, so maybe we've just got to accept that things die, but death brings life as well. I mean, this is the thing of, once again, of just our disconnect a bit. I mean, we, we want things to be clean. We want things to be safe, all that stuff. Well, if we are obsessed with cleanliness and safety, we will, we're in big trouble because nature and life comes from the muck and the, the you know, the humus and the the things that are falling and disintegrating as much as it is anything else. So, I mean, a misunderstanding of that is is just a, a terrible problem for us, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Gregory Day. We are discussing the Sand Archive, and if if the latter part of our conversation has you intrigued, there is so much to this book. I confessed off air to Gregory that I was drawn in by a novel, ostensibly, that I thought would be set in Geelong, a town that I love, and, and discovered so much more. So, Gregory, thank you so much. You've given me, given me so much in this book and so much in this conversation. Oh, it's a pleasure, Andrew. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> that was a nice... That's, that's my, my two-air two kind of ending. But yeah. I, um, I did have a question that doesn't really fit with our discussion, but it, it, yeah. it intrigued me. So that, that quote that I pulled out of Professor Lacombe... Am I pronouncing his name? Lacombe? Yeah, Lacombe. Lacombe. Yeah. Um, Liberty at the expense of the land is not worth considering. I, I pulled that out from sort of the second act uh, in... And it's an it's an untranslated uh, sort of little speech that Lacombe gives to Francis. Yeah. And where in other parts of the book you you use the French, usually in the next page or so the discussion translates translates it if it's not directly translated. But that that yeah. passage I didn't find it d- translated in any way. And yet for me, when yeah. I when I took the time to punch it into a translator and figure it out. It, it turned the whole spirit of the book for me. Like, it was yeah. really a philosophical turning point. What was, what was your thinking in not translating that? Uh, well, that's exactly... I mean, that, I'm very happy what you've just said. Uh, mm. That's exactly why it's not translated, mm. why it's not given, because it's a bit like a tabernacle in a church. It is the absolute heart of the book for me. Mm. And so if someone... Um, like you did, is interested enough to just, and as we know these days with what the tools we've got, we can, mm. whether we know French or not, if they, if they are interested enough to translate it, there it is. It's like the code, mm. the DNA of the book that you just have to dig a little bit deeper for. That's it for this great conversation with Gregory Day. Gregory's new novel, A Sand Archive, is out now through Pan Macmillan. 
Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast and discover more fantastic Australian writing delivered straight to your phone every week. And if you're enjoying the show, uh, give us a rating. It'll really help others to discover not only the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast, but also the fantastic literature and authors that we feature. To keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and just launched this week our new Instagram. All you have to do is search for Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel, and I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft.